Okay, Genesis chapter 17, starting in verse 9. Now, before we get here, let me just ask, see if you remember, if you can recall, an easy question and a little more difficult question regarding covenants in the Bible. We've talked about several of them. What was the sign of the Noahic covenant? The rainbow. Very good. Okay, that was the easy question. Now for the tough one. What was the sign of the Adamic covenant? Covenant God made with Adam and Eve. I actually had to go back and rethink this one myself. The sign of the covenant God made with Adam and Eve. Remember it happened right in the middle of the curse that God was laying out. Genesis 3.15, which tells us that, uh, what does it tell us? Look in your Bible, flip back to Genesis 3.15, it's the same book we're in, we can do that. Yes, yes, that's it. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and recall her seed. Her seed. Now, we've talked about this many times. If you haven't heard this, her seed is indicating the miraculous seed that would ultimately be Jesus. Because her seed, woman doesn't have seed, she has egg, man has a seed. He shall bruise you or crush you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The sign of the Adamic covenant is the miraculous seed. The sign of the fulfillment of God's promise, God's guarantee, going all the way back to the very first promise he made was that miraculous seed, which we see play out in the birth and the life of Jesus later on. Well, now we come to the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And it's an interesting sign. And uh, it's one that we're going to have to take a little time looking at tonight, thinking about. Hang on a second. Losing my mic. Um, can anyone recall what the word covenant means specifically? To cut. to cut. It's the Hebrew word beri. Cut or cutting. It's a perfect word for the symbol that God is going to give, the sign that God is going to give Abraham. Now you remember there's a graphic example of covenant back in Genesis 15. God told Abram, give me a heifer and a goat and a ram, a turtle dove and a pigeon. And Abram took at least the, the heifer, the goat, and the ram, and he halved them. He cut them in half and laid them out one up opposite the other with a path of blood in between. God walked that path as a symbol of his covenant with Abraham, covenant to cut. And so it makes perfect sense. Now verse 9 of Genesis 17. God said further to Abraham, Now, as for you... You shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Now you've got to wonder what Abraham was thinking... When God said, now, as for you. Before he found out what the special sign was going to be. Now, Abram probably had, Abraham probably had some recollection, some teaching, some knowledge of at least the Noahic covenant, sign of the rainbow. He may have known about the covenant with Adam and Eve, not understanding it, but the sign of the rainbow was probably something he understood. And so God's making covenant. He's cutting covenant with Abraham. And maybe Abraham's thinking, a star. Maybe it'll be a star in the sky. 
You know, because he said, my people are going to be like the stars in the heavens. Or maybe some kind of special crown. What's my badge going to be? And God says, circumcision. I bet you saw stars. And you may have seen stars. (laughs) So God tells him, I want you to circumcise the flesh of your foreskin. And I really like the way the Bible says that. It's much easier than anything I could come up with. I read it and I thought, okay, I'll just say flesh of your foreskin and we don't have to go any further than that. That's the sign. That's your badge. Now, can you imagine Abraham coming home and telling Sarah about this? She knows. He's off. He's speaking with God. He comes in. Yeah, and Sarah laughs. Ha ha! Finally! Finally, the man gets something. We get all that pain in childbirth. I just, it's hilarious. It's funny. Abraham, he must have been listening to God and... Excuse me? Are you serious? You've got to be kidding. I still don't know how he got around telling Sarah about it. This guy's 99 years old, too. This is not like a newborn. This is not like a little baby. Circumcision. Verse 12. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off, (laughs) interesting pun, from his people. He has broken my covenant. This was serious business. God goes so far as to say that the man or boy who does not cut off the flesh of the foreskin will himself be cut off. And the implication is very strong. It may even refer to death. It may even refer to capital punishment. If you don't keep the covenant of circumcision, you will be cut off. Well, what makes you say that? Book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 26, tells us, prophetically, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Well, how was the Messiah cut off but that he was crucified? He was given the death penalty. So what's the real deal with circumcision? I want want you to notice a couple of specific verses in this passage we just read before we move on. Important things, interesting things. Verse 12. Verse 12 going back says, Every male among you who is eight days old, eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. Circumcision was commanded to happen on the eighth day. Now Judaism is the only religion in the world in history that practices circumcision on the eighth day as a part of their religion. There are other religions, other pagan religions, different types of belief systems that do circumcise, but they circumcise on the first day of birth, or on the fourth day, or the sixth day, or the seventh, or the thirteenth. Put a little check in your mind with the thirteenth, we'll come back to that. Some even on the twentieth day. Why did God command circumcision for the eighth day? Listen, when God is specific, there's a reason for it. It's not just by chance. He says it's got to be, it needs to be, it will be on the the eighth day. Three reasons. Number one, the eighth day is medically significant. 
It's medically significant. 20th century scientists have made remarkable discoveries in the area of circumcision. Something that Abraham couldn't possibly have known. Something that Moses, as he penned these words looking back, told by the Holy Spirit what to write, could not possibly have known or understood unless someone told him, someone greater than, someone who would know these things. And that's that newborn babies have a peculiar susceptibility to bleeding. A very serious one. In fact, between the second and five, fifth days of their lives, it's very dangerous. Even a small cut can bleed excessively, dangerously. The clotting of blood is affected by vitamin K. And vitamin K is not formed in the normal uh, child until, or, or in the normal amount, until between the fifth and the seventh day. So you don't even have that, that vitamin that is necessary for the clotting of blood until that point. And we're told medically the first safe day is the eighth day. Wow. It's medically significant. Furthermore, prothrombin, which is also necessary for effective clotting, is only at 30% capacity by the third day of a child's life. However, it peaks at 110% production on the eighth day, and then after that levels off to 100%. So on the eighth day, prothrombin is even stronger, really surging, really pumping out, really doing its stuff. It's a good day. You're going to have to be circumcised. The eighth day. It's medically significant that the Lord chose this day. I wonder, do you think the Lord knew this ahead of time? Did he plan this out? Was this part of his design as the master creator? Of course it was. Well, secondly, the eighth day is numerically significant. It's medically significant, but it's also numerically significant. Now, we've seen some things like this in our studies so far. There are certain numbers in the Bible with significant meaning behind them. The number three, expressing the trinity of God. The number six is the number of man, the incomplete number, the imperfect number, the number that's not quite there. The number seven is that number of completion, fulfillment. The number 12, 12 is an interesting number. We looked at that a few weeks ago. It's the number of government. And the number 13, here comes that number 13 again, and there's a circumcision that happens on the 13th day with a religious group. But the number 13 in the Bible is the number of rebellion and anarchy. We'll come back to that. But what about the number 8 itself is so significant? What is it about this number? The number 8 is associated with the idea of the firstborn or brand new life. Exodus chapter 22 verse 29 tells us, God says, you shall not delay the offering from your harvest and your vintage. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days. On the eighth day, you shall give it to me. So God goes all the way back, and, and in giving the law in Exodus, He says, Hey, your firstborn's mine. Your firstborn son belongs to me. He'll be with his mother seven days. But on the eighth day, the day of circumcision, the day that you bring him to, to me to be dedicated, that day, he becomes mine. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that the firstborn son went and lived in the temple or lived with the priest. It just meant every firstborn of every family specifically belonged to, was dedicated to the Lord. And that giving happened on the eighth day. Furthermore, Israel's harvest offerings were brought to the Lord on the eighth day. And sacrifices were made on the eighth day. So it seems that eight is the number of the firstborn. The number of new life, which brings us to the third point. The eighth day is medically significant, it's numerically significant, but the eighth day is also prophetically significant. You probably knew we were going to get around to that eventually. 
The Abrahamic covenant and its signs circumcision both tied back to the Adamic covenant, which ties into the eighth day as well. Now, tying all this stuff together, we ask the question, okay, how's, how's that work? Both the Abrahamic covenant and the covenant with Adam have to do with the promised seed. Both of them connect this promised seed. Genesis 3.15 again, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. That first, that proto-evangelicum, first mention of the gospel in scripture. And now coming up to the Abrahamic covenant, God is saying the seed, Abraham. The seed is important. The seed. And you will circumcise, and graphic though this is, folks, it's the truth. It's the place where the passing of the seed happens that God chooses for a sign of covenant in circumcision. And this circumcision, again, happens on the eighth day. Have you ever noticed, by the way, how meticulous the record is of Jesus' birth? Flip in your Bibles. Keep a finger in Genesis 17 and flip all the way over to Luke. Luke chapter 2. All the law, all the covenants were fulfilled with the birth of this baby. It's recorded that he was the son of Abraham, that he was the son of David, and that he himself was circumcised as required on the eighth day. Let's look at that. Luke chapter 2, verse 21. Luke 2, 21. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Verse 23, as it was written in the law of the, of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. We just read that verse in Exodus 22. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Verse 25. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, Christos, Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for, to him, or for him the custom of the law... Then they took him into, he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, and this is Simeon speaking, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. Verse 33, And his father and mother, by the way, his father there is actually Joseph. Doesn't say his father in the original language, it says Joseph, which makes sense. And Joseph and his mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, listen to this, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Jesus, on the eighth day, Brought into the temple, connected to this man Simeon, who was promised by the Spirit that he would see the Lord's consolation, that he would see the promised seed. And on that eighth day, he saw the promised seed. That seed was Jesus, and Simeon had been waiting for him. Now, one more thing on this number eight that's interesting. Both the Hebrew and Greek languages assign numerical values to their letters in their alphabet. 
Now you know this, the Alpha and the Omega, first and the last, beginning and the end. And the same with the Hebrew, the, the Aleph and the Tav, which is the first and last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so each one of the letters is also a number in those languages. We see a similar thing in the, the uh, Latin language, although what's interesting about the Latin language is it's only six numbers, six letters that are actually numbers as well. Anyway, that's just a side note there. But the study of these numerical values as they apply to words and names is called gematria or gematrics. And it's this whole idea of taking these letters and assigning numbers to them and by doing so discovering things about the word or the name. In this case, well not in this case, hold off in this case for a second, let me give you an example. The Bible tells us that Antichrist has a number. You know that number? 666, that's right, the number that freaks everybody out and there's no reason for it to because we're not going to be here anyway. But Revelation chapter 13 verse 18 says the following, Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man and his number is 666. Now people have gone nuts with this, had a field day with it. Some nutty prophecies, some nutty ideas have come out of this, but it's very simple. John being given the revelation by Jesus, Jesus says, hey, let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. That number, that name, geometrically speaking, 666. It should be easy, no problem, right? Well, applying geometrics to this idea, it's interesting to note that when you add up Caesar Nero's name, you come out to 666. Caesar Nero. Well, yeah, Caesar Nero came and went and died. And, and was one of the worst persecutors of Christianity in history. Are you saying that that was Antichrist? No, I'm not saying that was Antichrist. But what I'm saying is that the spirit of Antichrist was very likely in the man. Was very likely in Nero. That insane, murderous spirit that was so hungry to go after God's people. Just an interesting thought. I, I could be completely wrong, so don't write that down. You're taking notes. <laughs> But that whole idea of dramatics and applying numbers to names, that, that's what we're talking about here. Now here's something that's very interesting and is very accurate, and that's the number of Jesus' name. You see, when you apply this, this standard of dramatics to the name of Jesus in the Greek, it adds up to 888. 888. Which I put to you is more than a perfect number. It is a beyond perfect number. We talk about the number seven being the number of completion. Well, what happens when you step one beyond seven, you get Jesus. More than completion, more than perfect, the ultimate, perfect, righteous man, Jesus Christ. This seed, the Proto-Evangelicum and the Edemic Covenant, the promised seed in the Abrahamic Covenant, the only begotten Son of God, is the Mashiach, Messiah, the hope of Israel. And as people grafted in, he is our salvation as well. The entire focus of God's covenantal plan for all humanity is Jesus Christ. And through the covenant sign, the sign of circumcision, folks, through this very sign would pass the promise of Messiah. The guarantee that Messiah would come. That he would come through this line of Abraham. Wow. By the way, which day of the week was it that Jesus resurrected from the dead? Does anybody remember that? Thursday. Third day from his death. <laughs> he resurrected on the third day from his crucifixion. But what day of the week was it that Jesus resurrected? Sunday, which is what day of the week? It's the first. It's also the eighth. 
because it's the day after the seventh. Right? Okay, tuck that thought away. We're going to come back to it later. But let's get back to this. Uh, look at verse 13 in Genesis 17. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Circumcision was, both literally and spiritually, it was all about a removal of flesh. Why again the foreskin? For a good cause. Let me just read directly what Henry Morris says in the Genesis record. He said, That which is most sacred, of course, can be most debauched. God's first command to man after the creation of the flood, Genesis 1.28 and 9.1, had been, Be fruitful and multiply. The sexual act and the reproductive process are uniquely joyful and dynamic, enjoying the full blessing of God when carried out to His revealed purpose in the union of a man and a woman who love him and believe in his word. Now listen to this. On the other hand, in any other context, they can become vehicles of sin and corruption of the worst sort. As we'll see in chapter 19 coming up here. Satan has again and again led man into sexual debauchery, corrupting the marriage institution in every conceivable way in order to thwart God's purpose for man and his redemption. And Seattle's mayor would be right on board with all this. The corruption and destruction of marriage. The sexual corruption of that which God created in the first place to be beautiful, to be pleasurable, to be joyful, and to be fruitful. This was all God's plan. So when God gives Abraham the covenant of circumcision, understand that in the world at that time, things were already in bad shape. As we will see when we approach Sodom and Gomorrah. Sexual sin was rampant, and God says, check this out, I'm going to give you something, Abraham. Sign of the covenant. I want you to understand that the relationship we have is beyond the physical. You need to think about removal of the flesh and focus on me. And focus on that which is right, that which is spiritual. Now, circumcision, circumcision signifies several different things. I want to give you five things to write down. These are just real quick. We're not going to do verses with these. But just to think through this whole idea of circumcision and, and why. Number one, it signified purity. Again, medical science discovered a cleanliness through circumcision that was not known until the 20th century. Not understood, not recognized that this is actually a healthy thing to do. So there's that aspect of purity in circumcision or of cleanliness. Secondly, it signified privacy. Privacy. This was a sign that no one would see outwardly. As you think this through, it makes sense. This is not something that God's going to give you a sign that you can just show the world. Hopefully not. Abraham, what I want you to do is you're going to have a sign that is a private sign. A sign that you are aware of. A sign that your wife, Sarah, she will be aware of. And as parents circumcise their children, their boys, their little boys on that eighth day, the parents will know that they are passing along this particular covenantal sign. But it's not something to flaunt. It is an inward, private sign. It's something that you and I, the Lord would say, are aware of. Number three, it's a sign of intimacy. Purity, privacy, intimacy. The connection of the very reproductive process to God is intimate. And I believe to this very day a baby does not come into the world without God touching that life. Without God, as the psalmist said, Psalm 139, knit me together in my mother's womb. I believe 
thoroughly that God is actively involved in the birth process with every child that comes into this world. There is a connection there of intimacy. It's as though God is saying, I'm the giver of life. Don't try to take me out of this process. See, again, our country has tried to take God out of the process. But you can't take the Creator out of the creative process. God is involved intimately. Number four, circumcision signified sensitivity. Especially right afterward. There's no more physically sensitive place on the body of a man than the place chosen for circumcision. Now I know we don't normally talk about things like this in here. Hang with me, it's okay. It's biblical. We're still on the page of the scripture. But it's not physical sensitivity that God is concerned with here. Again, remember, it's a physical sign, an outward sign of something inward that God is doing. And so he chooses something that does have sensitivity involved. But God is concerned with, again, spiritual sensitivity. A sensitivity to the things of God, to His will. So purity, privacy, intimacy, sensitivity. And number five, and this is important, circumcision signifies exclusivity. Exclusivity. This covenant would set Israel apart from this day forward throughout history and Israelis today would wish that it hadn't. In fact, I've actually heard some say, you know, it might have been better if God had just chosen another people and not us. For you see, the moment that this happened, from this day forward, Jews were a marked people. Jews were doing something that other peoples would become aware of, probably shouldn't have become aware of, but did. And over time, through history, they would be maligned for this very act. In fact, there were huge blocks of time where Jewish people themselves refused to be circumcised. Did you know that? Where they stopped. They quit. They said, enough of this. This is just too much persecution. Too much problem that comes through this. And they stepped back from it. Or they went to the other extreme and assigned circumcision a legality that completely lost sight of its original meaning. Completely missed the fact that this is not an outward sign. It is an outward sign of an inward thing that is going on. And here's a problem. Here's a red flag, and it's a human red flag we need to be aware of. Because with man, the sign tends to stomp out the spiritual. It's what we do best. The ritual replaces the reality. The meaning is lost to the monotony. It is never the sign that saves. It is never the sign that connects a person to God. It is only faith in God's grace that saves a person. Think about this. When was Abraham credited with righteousness by God? Before or after circumcision? Before. The act of circumcision had absolutely nothing to do with Abraham's righteousness. That was credited to him by God ahead of time. So that, so that Abraham could not boast. Flipping your Bibles over to Romans chapter 4. Romans 4. Paul expresses this as this, this is very important. The application to us in our lives and our belief system as Christians is huge here. Romans chapter 4, verse 7. <clears throat> Quoting Psalm 32, Paul says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also. For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. 
How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or while he was uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And, verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all, I have this underlined, who believe. The father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. Verse 12, Paul says, And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abram, Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. What's Paul saying? He's saying, look, knock off the self-righteousness. Because it won't get you anywhere. It is not because Abraham obeyed in circumcision that he was credited as righteous. It was because Abram believed before he had done a single thing. And that's the way it worked then. That's the way it works today. It's never the ritual that redeems a person. It's the relationship that you have with the Father. Flip over a bit further to Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. We'll get back to Genesis 17 in a minute. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. Paul goes on in this letter to say these things. Colossians 2.8 See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him you have been made complete. And He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in a removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12, having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions and having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross." Now, there is a corollary in the New Testament to the circumcision of the Old Testament. I like the corollary better. It's baptism. It's a little less painful. Put me under the water any day of the week, as opposed to being 99 years old and being told it's time to get circumcised. But though that correlation is there, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting. Go back to Romans chapter 4 again. Romans 4.11. And listen one more time. Paul said that Abraham received the sign of circumcision. A seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. Paul tells us something about circumcision that we would do well to pay attention to. Circumcision was both a sign and a seal. Okay, It was a sign and a seal. Now, though baptism in the New Testament is an interesting corollary, it is an act of obedience, it is an act of obedience after the act of faith, after the act of belief that gains righteousness with God. It, it, it's an, an action that is an action of acceptance in the same way that circumcision was an act, action of acceptance, but 
Baptism is never called a sign or a seal. Not in the New Testament. Not in the Bible. Something else is called the sign and the seal in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 tells us, In Him you also, and I'll just read this to you, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed. Okay. You were sealed how? In Him with the Holy Spirit. With the Holy Spirit of promise. Who is given as a pledge, a badge, a sign, if you will, of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Folks, the Holy Spirit is the seal given to the believer. The Holy Spirit is the New Testament corollary to the Old Testament of circumcision. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. For you see, when God calls you home, whether it's through death or rapture or whatever, when He calls you home, what He's going to look for is the seal. But it's not circumcision he's looking for. It's not, are you still dripping wet from the baptism? It is the seal of the Holy Spirit. Philippians chapter 3 verse 3. Paul writes, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false... <laughs> beware of the false... Good timing, Annie. Beware of the false circumcision. He said... <laughs> beware of the dogs. <laughs> Philippians 3.3 3, For we are the true circumcision who worship how? In the Spirit. In the Spirit of God and we glory in Christ Jesus and we put no confidence in the flesh. The Holy Spirit is your seal. So that we who are the circumcision according to Paul, the church, who worship God in the Spirit and who put no confidence in the flesh, that's, that's our sign, our seal, the Holy Spirit of God. Working and moving and living in our lives. And in the Abrahamic covenant, the Jews became a marked people. But remember, in Christ, you are a marked person as well. Back to Genesis 17. And at this pace, we should be done sometime tomorrow morning. Genesis 17, verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, now we studied this Sunday morning, so I'm going to move through this section pretty quick. But let's just read through it. God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, I, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, I, but Sarah, princess shall be her name and I will bless her and indeed I will give you a son by her and then I will bless her and she'll be the mother of nations and kings of people will come from her and Abraham fell on his face and he laughed and we said on Sunday this laugh was not a laugh of disbelief this was a laugh of joy a laugh of wonder a laugh of oh wow great well it goes on so he fell on his face and he laughed and he said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? And then it struck Abram, as we saw Sunday morning, struck him hard like a ton of bricks. Oh, Ishmael. Ishmael, my son. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Oh, oh that Ishmael might be the son of the covenant. But God said, No. Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. Laughter. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I'll bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes. We'll read about them later on. And I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. And when he had finished talking to him, God went up from Abraham. You may recall this, but we all have our Ishmaels 
We all have our Isaacs. Our Ishmaels are those things, those decisions, those choices we make outside of the will of God. Those things we decide to do first. Those things that tend to mess up our lives. And once we've made those faithless decisions, oftentimes we come running back to God and say, Lord, bless this mess! Will you just take, oh, that it might be Ishmael. But in our faith walk with God, we also have our Isaacs. Those are the things where in faith we just trust God. And what seems to be clear to me, the indication is that our Isaacs are the way to live. Our Isaacs are the way to have joy and fulfillment and to really truly have life. Following God's will and not our own. We can cry out and we can ask God to bless our mess, our Ishmaels, or we can seek the will of the Father and His promised Isaacs. Now, quickly, before we leave chapter 17, there's something I want you to note. And if you take notes, you may want to write these three things down. God comes to Abraham. He gives him this covenantal sign, circumcision. And I want you to watch how Abraham obeys. It's amazing. Verse 23. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all the servants who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day, as God had said to him. Now Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, Ishmael his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the very same day Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael his son, and all the men of his household who were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. <laughs> That's amazing to me. That's a lot of circumcision in one day. A lot of very weak, pathetic males in one day sitting around moaning and whining and it's a good thing Abraham was not attacked in that day. Would have been bad. There's another story in scripture we won't go to tonight where a group was circumcised and got attacked and it wasn't a pretty sight. But there are three wonderful yet challenging acts of obedience here. First of all, number one, parental obedience. Parents, man, note this. And allow me just for a moment to challenge you the way I've been challenged with this this week. Parental obedience. Notice what Abraham did in verse 23. It says, Abraham took Ishmael his son. He didn't tell Ishmael his son. He didn't say, hey Ishmael, listen, God told us that we need to be circumcised. What do you think? What do you think a 13-year-old boy is going to think? Now, this is great. I was talking to Frank just yesterday about this. And there is actually, in the, it's the Bible Lands Museum in Israel. And if you go in there, there's a mural on the wall, like a tile mural. And it's a mural of four men holding down a young teenager. And it is a picture of Ishmael on the day of his circumcision. And I, I, that must have, I mean, can you imagine? But Abraham didn't give him the choice. Now, pay attention to this. It's important. Parents. Parental obedience to the father. Abraham did not give Ishmael the choice. He didn't say, hey Ishmael, want to go to church this morning? Hey Ishmael, you want to pray together? Hey Ishmael, what do you think about reading the Bible? He took Ishmael. He said, boy... I'm going to do it, you're going to do it. <laughs> no. He said, hey, you're a son of my flesh. You're in my house. And my faith to God is your faith to God. And as long as you're under my roof, my dad said that so many times, and I just, it made me so mad. 
You know, I never, I mean, oh, I won't say never, but rarely ever missed church. I went kicking and screaming, and my church didn't have cool music. <laughs> it was difficult for me many times to go to church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, throughout my childhood. And when I got into college, I rebelled against that. I said, I'm not in my father's house anymore. And so, all that teaching, whatever, Dad. But you know what? It only took me a year, two, three years, and suddenly I started feeling empty. I was missing something. And what am I doing today? Every time the door is open. Parental obedience. By the way, Muslims circumcise on the 13th day. Because Ishmael was 13 years old when he was born. And again, 13 in the Bible always represents anarchy or rebellion. And what more rebellious people than the wild donkey people of Ishmael? Proverbs 22, verse 6, back to us parents, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Folks, parents, moms, dads, it is our responsibility to train our kids up in the Lord. And you know what? Dr. Spock was wrong. They don't get it on their own. They don't just figure it out. It doesn't just hit them one day. When they're out doing other things, they don't just suddenly go, Wow, you know what? I think I'm going to do that. I think I'm going to be an obedient child now. It doesn't happen. How many children, when they're young, how many children do you have to teach how to lie? How many children do you have to train up in the way of rebellion? Now that comes very naturally for kids. For all of us. But you do have to teach them to love. And you have to teach them to tell the truth. And you have to do your best to teach them what God wants you to teach them. Parental obedience. You know what? Especially dads. I think dads have blown it. I really think we have. I think we have missed the boat. Notice the language again. Abram, Abraham took him. He didn't just tell him. Abraham was involved. It wasn't like, hey, Ishmael, why don't you start spending more time in prayer? It would have been, Ishmael, let's pray together. Abraham engaged in this act of obedience with his son. Abraham didn't just drop his son off at Sunday school. That always amazes me. I've never understood that. And I'm speaking here, I'm preaching to the choir, so permit me to a moment here, but I never understood dropping a child off at church and leaving. And they see you drive away, and they look at the church, and they go, wow, it's not important to him. doesn't matter to Dad. I'll go in here, because I don't have a way home. <laughs> How about becoming your son or your daughter's prayer partner? How about spending that kind of time training up your children the way they should go. I feel very strongly about that because my kids are getting older now. I have a 13-year-old Ishmael. Well, it's not an Ishmael. He's an Isaac. God told us to have him. But I have a 13-year-old boy and I look at Corey and I go, man, I got five, six, seven years of influence in the home. Time's running out. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Listen to that again. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now I'm going to say something here, and, and some of you may totally disagree with me. That's okay. We can still be friends, and I may completely be wrong. Although in this context, I don't think so. We sat at McDonald's Saturday night, Cheryl and I and the kids. 
and we talked about what our expectations were for them the following Sunday morning. Because Cheryl and I knew there was going to be no more hay in the barn. Now, if you haven't been here, we used to have a big pile of hay over there. Used to have, like, we've been here 10 years. We, like, last week, had a pile of hay back in the corner, and the kids hung out there, and it was great, it was fun, and they got the crayons out, and they did the thing, and they'd jump and dive and play all over, you know, and I'd be back here trying to teach them. They're back there jumping around, and, and actually, it wasn't a problem for me. But as we needed the room for the chairs, we had to move it out. So we sat down with our children on Saturday night at McDonald's. See, we tricked them. First we got them the chocolate shakes, and then... <laughs> Then we got into it, <laughs> and we said, here's the deal, and specifically Hayden, because he's a little stinker in all this. He's the one that when the prayer's going on and there's food in front of us at the table, he's the one going, <laughs> you know. So we looked at Hayden, and I said, Hayden, three things, buddy. Here's the deal. Number one, when there's prayer going on, you're going to pray. You're going to close your eyes, and you're just going to pray. You don't have to getting all this perfect you just close your eyes and pray with us okay that's number one number two number two Hayden you're going to keep quiet and number three you're not going to ask mom how much longer (laughs) because when dad's preaching it could be forever no we told him these three things you've got to be quiet and I said part of it is because mom wants to hear and be engaged in what's going on herself but the other thing is you need to practice this behavior now here's where people may disagree with me isn't that putting them in a box you know they're going to grow up like church people they're going to come in and you know be praying and saying isn't that just wrong no listen to me I was raised in that box and I'm not a real churchy kind of a guy there's plenty of room to grow but our kids need the structure they need to know what it's about and where else in the world do they sit down and respect what's going on Hebrews chapter 12 verse 9 we had earthly fathers why? to discipline us and we respected them Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Now see, the Bible nails it. Discipline ain't fun. It's difficult. It produces sorrow. It causes tears. It is not anybody's cup of tea. I do not enjoy disciplining my kids. It's the, it's the thing I hate most. I just can't stand it. When I have to give a spanking, when I have to put a child on restriction, I'm, you know, they're in the room just crying, oh, I'm going to be restricted for the rest of my life. And I'm in the other room going, ah, I hate this. But i got to do it. Why? Well, discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful yet those who have been trained by it afterwards it yields check this out the peaceful fruit of righteousness so that's what God does with us we can learn something from our father in our own parental obedience well I didn't mean to go on so long on that one number two professional obedience Abraham circumcised all the men who worked for him his entire company got circumcised that day. Can you imagine what the ACLU would do with that in today's world? The lawsuit would be incredible. It'd be all over the news channels. This man is causing people to have to do something religious in the workplace. Yeah. I'll tell you what. 
it is time for Christians in the world to stand up and do what's right regardless of the consequences. Regardless of what happens, apparently Abraham hadn't heard about the separation of church and state yet. That hadn't come about. Now think about this quick application on professional obedience. Your life in the office, your life at work, your life in business, does it call your employees or your co-workers or even your boss to a higher standard? Are you living out professional obedience? What can you do to place spiritual productivity above business productivity? Because isn't that the more important thing anyway? Isn't that the bottom line, even in all the things that we do, that the spiritual result, isn't that supposed to be A number one what we're about? Not the next buck that we can make? Man. You you may not be able to change hearts, but you can impact behavior and maybe a heart will change. My grandpa had a gas station all his life. Well, not all of it, but when he was old enough to own his own gas station, he had one. And all week long, he had guys working for him. A lot of high school kids worked for him. But every Sunday, the gas station was closed. And one of his... Kids, one of the guys that worked there saw that week in and week out, week in and week out. Sunday's always closed, Sunday's always closed, always closed. And this boy went on to do other things, wasn't a Christian, never went to church. Fifteen years went by. And when he came back into this town where my grandfather lived, he ran into him. And he said, hey, i got to tell you, I'm a Christian now. Well, really? Well, what made the difference? Remember how you always used to close the gas station on Sunday? That really made an impact on me. Now we hear that and go, okay, well that's great. That's, uh, you know, back then. That was then and this is now. And, you know, things are open on Sundays now. Sports happen on Sundays now. Things go on on Sundays. And and you know what? (laughs) Sunday, you just got to roll with it. Well, let me ask you, has the importance of worship changed? The importance of professional obedience Just some thoughts. Don't get mad at me. Number three, personal obedience. Parental obedience, professional obedience, and check this out, probably the most important thing you can see, personal obedience. Abraham was 99 years old. Now, we've joked about that, but folks, he was 99. Is there ever a point in your life where you say, you know what, I'm just done. I have obeyed and obeyed and obeyed my whole life. It's coaster time now. It is time to retire and just kind of rest my way into the kingdom. God makes no provision for that. Our country may call for retirement. Our country may cast off people who are over 65. And if you're over 65, by the way, I'm in complete disagreement with the way our world views the age. God still expects obedience. God still expects productivity, growth. And that, my friends, does not stop until you meet Jesus. Two men in my life who had profound, profound impact on me. One man named Lemoyne Lewis in his 70s teaching Bible college when I was a freshman and a sophomore in college. He's since passed on. He's with the Lord now. But I remember going into Lemoyne Lewis's, Dr. Lewis's office, and this man was impressive, imposing, intelligent, and four feet tall. I mean, he would stand up there in this, at this lectern and he'd kind of lean over it and he had a little stage because you know, we couldn't hardly see him if he didn't and he'd speak to us and little white specks of spit would just fly all over the first row. I tried to get in the third row. And Lemoyne was amazing. 
Because he would stand up there and he'd put his Bible down and start to speak and he'd talk about <laughs> The Bible is rich. It's a rich book. You know, and this, I just love it. It's flying back and forth. And I realized, you know, watching him in class, he'd start talking and he'd, he'd just start going through the scriptures. And I'd, I'd go, his eyes are closed and he's been quoting Matthew for like the last five minutes and he hasn't looked at his Bible once. And I'm following along going, oh, Wow! This man in his mid-70s, I remember visiting him in his office, walking in there, wall-to-wall books, dusty and, and the desk and things spread out, and books that he was studying to understand the word better at that age. And as a college student, that blew my mind. And I went, wow, that's what I want to be when I'm in my 70s. I still want to be going after it. I want to be like Lemoyne or, or Floyd Strader, who hired me when he was 69 years old, senior pastor of Not Avenue Christian Church in California. 69. And this man... Wow, the conversations, the things I learned from him, amazing. Well, all those around me in the youth ministry world were trying to be like teenagers. I remember going into, into Floyd's office and sitting down and just the wisdom was incredible. Personal obedience. Abraham shows amazing obedience here, 99 years old, but in that same day, he obviously had learned his lesson by then. God said, Abraham, I want you to be circumcised, and he did it. And he didn't ask why, and he didn't argue about it. The only argument, if you recall, was could Ishmael have a play in this? But when it came to the act of obedience, Abraham just did it. Chapter 18. How are we doing on time here? Okay, give me a few more minutes. Chapter 18, verse 1. Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. That's in Hebron, what is today the West Bank while he was sitting in the, at the tent door in the heat of the day. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. They didn't walk up. They didn't wander into the scene. He looked up and, oh, there they are. They're there. They're standing there. Whoa. Abraham's a little surprised. I want you to notice something. He's very moved here and he rushes out to greet them. But note this. It says, the Lord appeared to him. And here we go again. It's another person of God in the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Three men. Two of them, we'll find out in a few minutes, were angels. One is God. Okay, Rick. Now, you just love to insert Jesus in the Old Testament, don't you? That's just all you're trying to do here. Find a place where you can say it's Jesus and you can't really prove it. Well, listen to this. John chapter 1, verse 18. Tells us that no one has seen God at any time. It hasn't happened. No one has seen God at any time. And I look at the story of Abraham and I go, really? Verse 1 says, the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. And by the way, the word the Lord there is Jehovah. It's not Adonai, which could be used for Lord God or could be used for Lord like as in someone that you're working for or whatever. Jehovah. Jehovah appeared to him. Appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. But John 1.18 says, no one has seen the Lord. No one has ever seen God. Oh, but it goes on and says, The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. And that word explained is exegeomai, where we get our word exegesis. Exegesis, to get into a passage and to understand it. To clearly get it down. To do kind of what we're doing tonight. To move through it and, and get to where you comprehend it. And that's what Jesus did with God. Jesus, the only begotten God, John 1.18 tells us, has explained Him. He's declared Him. Unfolded who God is. He's told Him. That's what Jesus does. 
He shows up. He declares the Father personally. And that's what's going on in chapter 18 right here. Now for those of you who, by the way, wonder about the connection between the Father and Son, wonder about where Jesus stands in the Godhood, look again. The Lord, Jehovah, is the one who is said to appear to Abraham here. But we know that God the Father does not appear, has not appeared before men. So Jehovah and Jesus are one and the same. One and the same. Reading on, verse 3. See, Abraham ran to meet them and he bowed down to the earth. And he said, My Lord, if now I found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. I think Abraham might have known what was going on here. If now I have found favor in your sight, I'm circumcised and I'm trying to obey. I know the Ishmael thing was a mess, but we're doing better now. Please do not pass your servant by. Verse 4. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that you may go on since you visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. And so Abraham hurried off into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, and I love this, prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. <laughs> Guys, have you ever done that to your wives? The boss is coming home, quick, get some dinner prepared. I just love this. He, w- he wants to get him a quick meal and now he's having her baked bread. Verse 7, it gets worse. Abraham also ran to the herd and he took a tender and a choice calf and gave it to the servant and he hurried to prepare it. He's slaughter a calf and cook it. Well, then he took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them and he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Wow. Abraham and Sarah prepare a small feast here for the visitors, these special men who have just come their way. Now, hospitality is a sometimes maligned or shunned gift, but it is a gift. Hospitality is a gift. Let me say that just one more time. Hospitality is a gift. Why press that issue? Because so many people are looking for the manifest gifts. I want to be the one who has the gift of prophecy. I want to be the one who has the gift of, of, of pastoring or teaching or, or speaking in tongues. I want, the, I want that gift, those power gifts. When does anyone say, God, give me the gift of hospitality? Please. Who asks for it? But it's a gift. It's a wonderful gift. It's powerful. It's huge to the Lord. Don't underestimate its value before him. Hebrews 13, verse 2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Do you think that happens today? You entertain angels without knowing it? Some of you have had me over to dinner. Do you think it's possible? No. (laughs) But we have another problem here. We have a difficulty. There is a law violational behavior going on here. Don't laugh too hard at it. Kosher law. Kosher law is being violated by the father of the Jews here. Ooh. How do you explain that one? Well, the law hadn't come yet. But he's still one of them. And why would a law come along later that is, in, that is contrary to the behavior of the father of faithful? Abraham. Well, what's the law? Well, quickly, Deuteronomy 21.14 says, You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. 
Now, what the Jewish people have done in kosher law is take that and stretch it out to say you can't eat any dairy products at the, t- at the same time as meat. Well, why is that? Well, because if you happen to be eating the meat of a young goat and drinking milk that maybe came from its mother and it goes down into your stomach and it begins to boil and seethe in there, you're violating the law. Is that ridiculous? That's just... Legalism, folks, is ridiculous. It's bizarre. And when you take any law, if you want to stand for legalism, and I really got into it with some people, this was years and years ago, literally over the role of women in the church. And there was a very legalistic perspective that said, 1 Corinthians 14, you can look it up on your own time, a woman should remain silent in the church. It's in the Bible. Now when we get to Corinthians in our Bible study, I'll explain it to you. We're in Genesis now, so I've got some time. But the concept, the thinking here was, man, uh, okay, well then, a woman cannot pray in the presence of a man. I actually got busted in a youth ministry as the youth pastor for calling on girls to pray in front of the boys. So we can talk in the right? Yeah, we'll allow you that. <laughs> I don't know about you, sir. <laughs> This became a huge issue that just exploded in my face. I wasn't long at that particular church, by the way, and this was years and years ago. But I remember sitting in an elders meeting and we were talking about this role of women and everything, and I, I finally just got fed up and I said, okay, then let's take it for what it is. If you want to be, and I said this, if you want to be legalistic, it says a woman should remain silent in the church, therefore the moment a woman walks in the door of the church, no more talking. That means when they're singing, it's all going to be low, no beautiful voices, because a woman has to be silent in the church, right? Right? That's what it says. As a matter of fact, the church isn't the building at all. The church is all the people. Therefore, a woman can never talk in the presence of one or more men who are part of the church. She just has to shut up. That's that's what's there. And it's as ridiculous as this whole kosher law that not only did Abraham violate, but it looks like God the Father and the two angels violated because they ate the curds and the milk and the calf. Legalism gets you nowhere, folks. It's ridiculous. It's ritual replacing reality. And the reality is that God desires a relationship with His people. And He'll do whatever it takes to get us there. Verse 9. They said to Him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And He said, There, in the tent. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door. (laughs) She's eavesdropping. I heard this just the other day. Isn't it interesting that she, that it never talks about Adam's dropping. It's always eavesdropping. (laughs) No, there's a connection there. Sorry. Okay, so going on, she's listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was, check us out, past childbearing. Literally there, folks, what it, what it says is that she's past the manner of women. In other words, she's gone through the change. Okay? Sarah is done. Now I want you to understand, this, this is just absolutely amazing. Sarah laughed to herself, and she had every right to laugh in disbelief because... She was barren as a young woman. She is now 90 years old, and she is postmenopausal. And God has just said, you're going to have a son. And Sarah says, all right. The Lord said to Abraham, 
Well, wait, verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself saying, After I become old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why does Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I'm so old? Verse 14, underline it, highlight it, circle it, memorize it. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Too hard? The word there could also mean miraculous, wonderful, amazing, overwhelming. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have her son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, oh, I did not laugh. I love this. For she was afraid, and he said, no. But you did laugh. <laughs> I know you laughed, Sarah. And isn't it great? God's not condemning. He doesn't come bursting through the tent going, Sinner! I heard your laughter from outside! No, he just... Sarah, you laugh, okay? Let's just admit things and get on with it. You laughed. <laughs> God knows what's going on in our heart. He's aware. He knows what we're thinking. He knows our motives. He knows that no matter how pure we may look, no matter how well we may hide things in the tent of our lives... He hears our laugh of disbelief. He knows our motives. He loves us. He loves us anyway. Well, verse 16 tells us the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to send them off. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Something bad is coming. Something awful. We're not going to talk about it tonight because I don't want to leave you on a downer note. However, there's one last thing I wanted to share with you tonight, if I may. We spent not a little time talking about circumcision and the eighth day. This idea of the number eight and its importance in this whole thing. But something else of great prophetic significance that I wanted to say until last, I want to share with you right now, and for good reason. But first I want to share with you part of an email that I just received from Barb today. She forwarded it to me. You'd think, you know, she lives right there, right, right down here, that we wouldn't have to email, but we do anyway. Yeah, it is faster. So, <laughs> I emailed her back and forth. It's, yeah, it's just what happens. The rain is beating on the windshield of our little Cessna. This is from Roland and Heidi Baker, Mozambique, February 28, 2004. Five of us are packed in cozily together, cruising along at 8,000 feet. The heater is on. My daughter Crystalline, my niece Marissa, and one of our boys are in the back, wrapped in sleeping bags and sleeping on soft pillows. They're totally at peace listening to worship music on their headsets, but deep inside the storm cloud, it is getting very dark. And the pounding of the rain is fierce and loud on our plane's aluminum skin just inches away from our faces. I turn on the cockpit lights and keep an eye on the glowing instruments. There is nothing to see outside except shimmering, splattering sheets of water on the plexiglass. Christine, one of our staff missionaries in Pimba, is going back to Maputo with us, and she asks quietly and as calmly as she can, Is this normal? She hasn't flown in small planes before. Yes! <laughs> When it rains, I assure her, turbulence is knocking us around a bit. Flying is always serious business. But actually, the situation is also quite fun. We appear to be totally cut off from the rest of the world, lost and out of control, with no way of knowing where we are or what we're doing. But, without being able to see out of the plane, I know exactly where we are. How high we are, how fast we are going, and where we are headed. With our storm scope, I know where the lightning is striking. 
I am in radio communication with air traffic control. I have a satellite phone and can call anywhere in the world from the air. I'm tuned into the world news on BBC shortwave. We are not alone after all, and I know that this rainstorm is very localized and we'll be through it soon. Suddenly, we break out of the cloud into spectacular heavenly beauty. The late afternoon sun is painting fiery orange and red edges on the pure fresh white clouds, artfully arranged in layers and billows all around us. Intensely rich rainbows come into focus. Deepest blue sky appears in corners of this masterpiece of a panorama. Another original unveiling of God's glory. This is what flying is about. It is another dimension high above the dust, dirt, pollution, and problems down below. All is creative wonder, dazzling, indescribable. It seems we could fly in this state forever. Now Roland goes on and writes, A few minutes ago, we could have been afraid and very upset with our surroundings. There was nothing to keep us going in confidence except our instruments and our radios. But we pressed on, knowing that the situation was normal and that the darkness would pass. But still we were not prepared for the wonder to be revealed, and now it is here. Revival is also here in Africa. It is glorious, more than we could imagine or expect years ago. Thousands of churches and a nation coming to Jesus. By the grace of our Lord Jesus, we persevered, and we are seeing what we have longed for all our lives. It's beautiful, breathtaking. We're almost in shock, having trouble comprehending the goodness of what is happening. We forget easily and grow dim almost without an excuse, but we also press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenwards in Christ Jesus, Philippians 3.14. And this line jumped out at me and grabbed me and wouldn't let me go this afternoon. There is far more ahead of us. And in the Christian life, the best is always yet to be. In the Christian life, the best is always yet to be. You have not experienced the best. You will experience the best. And the Apostle Paul, in writing about the rapture to the church, the rapture of the church at Thessalonica, he said the following, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we'll live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as also you are doing. Now listen to this and here's my point. In the study that we've gone through, the covenantal sign and the seal of, of circum circumcision, something hit me this week. Something resonated having to do with this eighth day. I kept coming back to this eighth day. Why the eighth day? And I understand the medical and I understand the numerical and even the prophetic related to Jesus and all that, but why the eighth day? It's more prophetically important, I think, than what I've said so far. Recall the standard of the week that God laid out in creation. Six days you shall work, and on the seventh day you shall rest. And what happens on the eighth day? It's the first day of the week. The first day of the new week. It is the day of new beginnings. It's the day of new life, if you will. It's the reason why the church, Acts chapter 20, was meeting on that first day. Resurrection day seemed like a better day to meet than on the Sabbath. Sabbath was a day of rest, but man, Sunday. It was the first day. A day of new beginnings, a day of life. If the six days of creation correlate, as I personally believe they do, to 6,000 years of earth history, 
And if the seventh day of God's rest correlates to that seventh millennium, known as the millennium, that thousand year reign of Jesus, that reign of peace and prosperity, that wonderful time of being with Jesus, then the eighth day is a picture, a reminder, a corollary to the first day of the rest of our lives, and that's eternity. What do you mean by that? Well, the day is fast approaching, but before it comes, think about what we have to look forward to. Number one, the rapture of the church. Spoken of in Revelation verse chapters 4 and 5. But, but, after the church is raptured, what happens? The tribulation, pain, sorrow, anguish, suffering, and a bloody battle. But after that, or at least during that time, a seven-year marriage feast in heaven for the church, for those raptured, for the true believers. You can read about that in Revelation 19. But after that, the bloody judgment at the return of Jesus. But after that, the thousand-year reign of peace and prosperity with Christ, Revelation chapter 20. But after that, unbelievably amazing, at the end of Revelation 20, you can read this, there is another rebellion, a final rebellion, where Satan actually will stir it up on planet Earth one last time, freed from the chains that he's in for a thousand years. And I know I'm getting into all kinds of end-times theology, and if you have questions, talk to me later. But after that final rebellion and the final judgment of God comes the eighth day. When we actually step into eternity forever with the Lord. Revelation 20 and 21 gives such a beautiful picture of that. And I wanted just to leave you with this thought tonight. And I want to leave you with this thought. Every time we meet, every time we talk, there is far more ahead of us. And in the Christian life, the best is always yet to be. Father, thank you so much for your words of comfort and encouragement that you give us. Lord, I don't even know how I existed without the realization before of the wonder that is before us. This whole idea that at any moment you may call us home. That tonight it could happen. That next week, a year, two years, whatever, Father, but in your time you have said you're going to call Come up here and we will go. And I long for that, Father. But my heart also recognizes that that great joy means some pain here on earth as well. And so I long for the time when that's over, when we can experience and enjoy the millennial reign of Jesus, the Bible so indicates. God, I, I know the end of that. There will be pain one last time. Father, you promise us, though, you promise us, dear Lord, that there will be a time when you wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more pain and no more sorrow and no more death, just an eternity of being with you, worshiping you. God, that's what I look forward more than, to more than anything else. And it is our great hope to be with you forever. So Lord, I pray that you will remind us of the seal and the sign of the Holy Spirit in our lives that guarantees our place with you, our connection to you. And I pray, Father, that you'll deepen our faith. Help us to trust you more and to respond to your wonderful grace in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.